The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast that includes graphic and explicit content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Dear Pastor Raywinkle, I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I've been taught and that any reasons I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that, while not condoning this, will at least possibly understand why I felt I had to do this. Number one, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. Number two, but that brings me to my second point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing that they were on welfare was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know they were willing to cut back, but this involves a lot more than that. Number three, with Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what, might, what that might do to her continuing to be a Christian. I'm sure that it would not have helped. Number four, also with Helen not going to church, I knew this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come back to church soon. But when I mentioned to her that Mr. Jutz wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and said she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have an adverse result for the children's continued attendance. So that is the sum of it. If any one of these had been the condition, we might have pulled through, but this was just too much. At least I'm certain they have all gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. Of course, Mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have had a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from the hymn book. It was the least that I could do. Now for the final arrangements. Helen and the children have all agreed that they would prefer to be cremated. Please see to it that the costs are kept low. For Mother, she has a plot at the Frankenmuth Church Cemetery. Please contact Mr. Herman Shelkos, Route 4, Vassar, Michigan, 41768. He's married to a niece of Mother's and knows what arrangements are to be made. She also wanted Reverend Herman Zender of Bay City to preach the sermon, but he's not well. Also, I'm leaving some letters in your care. Please send them on and add whatever comments you think appropriate. The relationships are as follows. Mrs. Lydia Meyer, mother's sister. Mrs. Eva Meyer, Helen's sister. Jean Seifert, Helen's sister. Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and personal things, but to the extent possible, I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go to the school or church library. Originally, I had planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. As for me, please let me be dropped from the congregation rolls. I leave myself in the hand of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way I had hoped they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned. I know that many will only look at the additional years they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. Pastor, Mrs. Morris may possibly be reached at 802 Pleasant Hill Drive, Elkin, home of her sister. 
one other thing, it may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know, even at the last second, that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest of them were immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I am only concerned with making my peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John. podcast. I am your host Megan. Thank you for joining me for episode number six. So let's get to social media first. If you want to check us out on Facebook, you can find us at Wheel of Crime Podcast on Facebook. We are also on Instagram at Wheel of Crime Podcast. Also check out the blog at wheelofcrimepodcast.blogspot.com. And finally, you can email us at wheelofcrimepodcast at gmail.com with suggestions for cases, categories, and comments. I plan on doing a future bonus episode containing listener stories, so if you've had something really messed up happen to you, or you just want to send me an amusing antidote and want it right on the air, shoot us an email. So, the wheel chose family annihilators for this episode's topic. Now, I'll be completely honest with you, I wanted to cover the Chris Watts case ever since I heard about it. However, Dr. Phil does a podcast called Analysis of Murder, and he goes pretty in-depth in his shows, and he's covering the Chris Watts case. Besides that, so many other podcasts have covered it and have done a tremendous job at it. That's how I found the Brohio podcast. I was searching for more podcasts who covered the case and came across them. Speaking of the bros, I wanted to send them a quick shout-out to say thank you for playing the Wheel of Crimes promo. I deeply appreciate you guys being so generous and helpful. If you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, check them out. They are awesome. But I'm going to give you a fair warning. Don't listen to them around your kids or your parents. So back to today's case. A listener, Robin Wells, hi at Robin, suggested we cover John List. I read about this murder back in 2004, and I remember thinking, how on earth could anybody do this to their family? I was going to say, how could anyone do this who was raised in religion? But history has taught us that religious tenacities do not stop murders. 
regardless of the mask projected to the world. All right, so let's get started, shall we? According to crimetraveler.org, in an estimated 95% of familial side cases, the perpetrator is male, and there's typically some sort of rage, either against the spouse or against the world, in which he turns that rage onto his entire family. Professor Neil Websdale, a professor at Northern Arizona University, has studied familial side and is the author of Familial Side Hearts, Familial Cidal, I, I really can't pronounce that word very well, Familial Cidal Hearts, The Emotional Styles of 211 Killers. Anyway, Professor Neil Websdale believes that the ideal of the male societal role and no longer meeting that role is a common trait among family annihilators and has categorized such killers into two groups. There is the livid coercive killer who is motivated by anger and rage. These types typically have control issues and exhibit abusive tendencies while trying to achieve their self-worth by exerting authority in the home. If the marriage should begin to fail because of the control issues and the wife and kids try to leave the house, the inability to control and the feelings of humiliation could trigger acts of violence against his family. The other type is the civil reputable killer uh, and he is motivated by altruism, which is selflessness, where his identity is wrapped in his family. And I think our listener case today is the civil reputable killer. Many of these killers murder their family as a way of saving them from the hardships and shame of financial troubles. And most of these killers will kill themselves afterwards, or if suicide fails, will plead insanity. But as we've seen throughout history, this is not always the case, as the motivations for murder and methods of dispatching it vary from person to person situation to situation. So <clears throat> I'm going to put my own views in here and take it with a grain of salt because while I study true crime and psychology behind murderers, I'm not a licensed psychologist. So that being said, in my observations of family killers, while not all cases can be compartmentalized into two different categories of reasoning, I have found two common reasons a man may murder his family, money and sex. When choosing this topic for, the case, for today's case, like I said, I was leaning more towards covering Chris Watts and Chris Coleman. Now, <clears throat> Chris Watts is all over the news lately for a book that has been written by a regular visitor of his named Sherilyn Cadle. In the letters, he describes how he went about killing his pregnant wife and two daughters in a horrific way. The reason for his act can be financial because they had two children, a $400,000 home and $9 in their bank account and one child on the way, but really it was sex. He told Cadle that had it not been for his mistress, Nicole Kessinger, he never would have murdered his family. Personally, this is an absolute cop-out, but then again, he's a lying snake who's changed his story several times, and he could never be faithful to his wife and honest with anybody. Chris Coleman is probably lesser known. He was a bodyguard for televangelist Joyce Myers and began receiving death threats in the months before his family was slaughtered. After excellent police work, the authorities discovered the only person who could have killed his wife and children was him, but why? He had a great job making six figures and really wanted for nothing, except another woman with whom he was having an affair. He felt he couldn't get a divorce because he would have lost his job, which requires he maintain a, a righteous lifestyle, which means divorce is not an option. What I would like to know is if divorce was sinful, why was adultery and murder okay? Isn't that worse in the eyes of his religion? 
While I believe that money and sex tend to be the biggest motivating factors in the familial side, I believe religion, while in nature is supposed to take that option off the table, tends to be another underlying factor as evidenced in the Coleman case. His motivation was less religious and more narcissism and selfishness. Um, but sometimes one's religion comes into play and can be used as a justification for a vile act. Now, I'm not taking aim at religion, nor am I trying to challenge anyone's beliefs, so don't send me hate mail about this. But it's undeniable that a way a person believes influences his or her behavior and the choices that he or she makes. Religious belief can also be used as a mask when it comes to justifying horrible decisions. Religious or not, we are still human at our core. Humans make mistakes, and a belief in God isn't going to change that. Sometimes humans use religion to make them appear better than others or better to others. What I mean by that is a family who goes to church and has what appears to be a deep-seated faith in their religion is more likely in the society to be seen as the perfect all-American family. But look under the surface of the illusion and things are never as they appear. By all appearances, the Lists were one such family. Born to strict German parents in Bay City, Michigan, and raised in the Lutheran faith, John Emil List seemed to be the perfect son, father, and husband. He ended up being a Sunday school teacher just like his father, who by most accounts was an emotionally reserved man. And John would also grow up to be incredibly reserved. John's mother, Alma, was an overbearing mother who clearly ran their family. John enlisted in the army in 1943 and after his discharge in 1946, he attended the University of Michigan and earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accounting. In 1950, with the escalation of the Korean War, John was recalled to active military service. He would be stationed at Fort Eustis in uh, Virginia, where he met his future wife, Helen Morris Taylor, a widow of an infantry officer who was killed in the Korean War. Helen had one daughter, Brenda, from her marriage to her deceased husband. John and Helen married on December 1, 1951 in Baltimore, then relocated to Southern California. The Army had reassigned him to the U.S. Army Finance Corps, and in 1952, they moved back to Michigan, where he worked for an accounting firm in, De in Detroit, and then as an audit supervisor at a paper company in Kalamazoo. This is where their three children, John Jr., Patricia, and Frederick, would be born. By 1959, he had climbed the ladder to general supervisor of the company's accounting department. His wife, by this time, was a full-blown alcoholic and every bit as overbearing as her mother-in-law and became mentally unstable. In 1960, Brenda got married and moved away, and John moved the rest of the family to Rochester, New York to take a job with Xerox, where he was the director of accounting services. Now, in the research, um, it, it does not say how she became mentally unstable, but I know around this time she had stopped attending church. She started drinking regularly, almost daily. Um, so it, it kind of took a big toll on, on her and the family. So it seems with each job, he was climbing higher and higher, which means his income was growing as well. In 1965, he became vice president and comptroller of a bank in New Jersey. I'm sorry, yeah, it's Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, now he was big time, and Helen, wanting the best of the best, put pressure on him to purchase a mansion called Breeze Knoll, a 19-room Victorian mansion in Westfield, New Jersey. He and his family moved in, including his mother, who lived in the in-law apartment on the third floor. Now, I remember reading a book about these murders back in 2004. I can't remember the name of it, but what I do remember from the reading was that even though this was a very large, very beautiful mansion, they had very little furniture to put into it. 
The rooms were left mostly bare, and they only used part of the house to save on electricity. He really didn't want to buy this house because it was so extravagant and way above their means, and he was very conservative, but he wanted to make his wife happy. You know, happy wife, happy life. John was what you would call a pacifist. He didn't like making waves, and he didn't like confrontation, which is why he never put his foot down. Perhaps if he had, what ended up happening would never have come to pass. John had lost his job and was unable to secure another one. Rather than come clean and admit that he had lost his job, he would go to the train station where he would sit all day and read the paper. He also stole money from his mother's bank account to pay the mortgage. So here is a man, deeply religious, emotionally unavailable, who has lost the only means he had to take care of his family and he felt like a failure. The first in a series of bad choices, he lied to his family and he stole from his mother which directly contradicts his faith. So why would he choose to lie and steal? Simple. Appearances. He didn't want to go on welfare because it would be embarrassing and violate the teachings his father bestowed upon him about self-sufficiency. So in his twisted mind, he came to the only conclusion he had. Murder. The decision really was twofold. Escape an insurmountable responsibility, financial and familial, and start anew, and also save his family from the depths of hell. Here's what bothers me the most about this reasoning. Not only is it a cop-out, but the Christian religion is what is called a revelation religion, meaning that it is revealed to each person individually. So if you come to religion, it's because a truth or something previously unknown to you has been disclosed. To me, that means it's a religion of personal, individual faith. And if you have a personal relationship with a God in which you choose to believe, that's a personal decision. I do not believe it is, a, it is a decision that a parent should make for their child or demand that from birth they must live in the faith of the parent in order to be saved from hell because it's a personal and individual decision. Otherwise, it's your choice, not theirs. And God gave us free will to choose what we wanted to choose. John decided to take that decision out of the hands of his children and decide for them where they would go in the afterlife and how it would happen. There is no personal revelation here. This is a forced relationship with the God of their father, and because they didn't live up to his expectations and he couldn't financially support them, he decided it was up to him to save them. Helen had stopped going to church, Patricia wanted to be an actress, and he felt that this would eventually all lead them down the path directly to hell. Personally, I see nothing altruistic about this decision at all. He was not trying to be the devoted child of his God, and he was not trying to be a good father, husband, and son. He was self-serving, overwhelmed with financial responsibility, and emotionally unable to express what was going on in his head, so his only solution was to start over. He didn't give his mother, wife, or children that choice. He decided for them in the most cowardly way. This was not a crime of passion, for John List never once showed passion if he ever felt it in his life. This crime was meditated and methodical, and it sent a ripple effect through the community in the annals of time that has left an indelible mark on history. On November 9, 1971, John waited for his children to go to school, and while his wife sat in the dining room table drinking coffee, he shot her in the back of the head, then dragged her body to the ballroom on a sleeping bag. Afterwards, he went upstairs and shot his mother in the head. She fell backwards and remained there until her body was found. When Patricia came home, he came up behind her and shot her in the head, dragging her to the ballroom to be placed next to her mother. Next was young Frederick, who suffered the same fate. 
After the killings, he made himself a sandwich and drove to John Jr.'s soccer game at his high school. He then brought him home, where he also shot him. His father would end up putting 10 rounds in the boy before being satisfied that his son was dead. He cleaned up the crime scene as best he could, turned down the thermostat to stall the decomposition, and put on funeral dirge-type music. He took scissors and cut himself out of every family picture in the house. Wow. He canceled the paper delivery and contacted the children's schools to tell them they would be on vacation. By the next morning, he was gone. I want to reiterate something here. This was not a crime of passion or a rage killing. He showed no emotion as he went through his family. He showed no emotion in the letter written to, to his pastor, which we heard at the beginning of the episode, and other family members. He showed no emotion as he cleaned out his bank accounts, putting everything in order and quietly disappearing from Westfield and from the life that he had created and then destroyed with forethought. He played judge and jury of his family, played God with their lives, then slipped away, unwilling to suffer the consequences of his actions. He was not concerned about their souls. He was not concerned that his children would wander away from their God. He was only concerned with his own life and getting away from the trap of marriage and family. On December 7, 1971, slightly more than 20 years after he married Helen, concerned neighbors called the, the police to report that the constant burning lights in the mansion were going out one by one. They also hadn't seen the family in some time and were growing worried. Police entered the home and heard the organ music piping through the intercom system. They also found a note written by John List explaining what he had done and where they could find his family. Think about how disturbing this must have been for first responders. Organ music playing in a sparsely decorated huge mansion, blood trails leading to the ballroom where four people are dead and another upstairs. A truly horrific scene. They eventually found John List's car parked at Kennedy International Airport, but by then it was too late. John List had had at least a one-month head start. So how did they manage to find a man who had disappeared into thin air after slaughtering his entire family in cold blood? Strangely enough, it was a television show that finally brought him to justice. The case was brought to the door of America's Most Wanted, which had been on the air less than a year at that time. You remember that show? I remember as a kid listening to that show as I was doing the dishes and thinking, holy cow, this world is really messed up. Though the case was the oldest they ever showcased on the program, they aired it on May 21st, 1989. The only problem they were facing was that the last known photo of John List was of a very young man, and without an updated photo, he may not have been recognizable. If any of you have watched Forensic Files, you may remember this story from on there as well. Um, they decided to try a new approach. Forensic artist Frank Bender was commissioned to create a physical bust of what John List would look like as an older man. Bender gave him a receding hairline, a slightly downturned mouth, and jowls based on the appearance of List's parents. He consulted with psychologists who suggested that he would still be wearing glasses, but uh, with a slightly different style than the horned rimmed glasses from a long time ago. Bender felt that with the burden of his crimes and the anticipation of impending arrest, it would sort of give him a paranoid look in his eyes where he wasn't quite settled. He had something to hide. So anyway, a woman in Denver, Colorado was watching the show with her daughter when the segment aired. Wanda Flannery and her daughter, Eva Mitchell, 
recognized the bust as their former neighbor, Robert Clark, who had recently moved to Richmond, Virginia with his wife. Nine days after the episode aired on June 1st, 1989, John Liss was arrested for the murder of his entire family, leaving his wife, neighbors, and community absolutely stunned. His lawyers tried to plead that he suffered from PTSD from, from his time in the military, but prosecutors and expert psychologists believe he was suffering from a midlife crisis, and even at that, it was no excuse for killing five innocent people. He was sentenced to five consecutive terms in a New Jersey prison. Let's listen to the forensic files um, part where they f where the people recognize him and turn him in. Let's listen. Dark, thick frames. The forensic bust was complete. Tonight on America's Most Wanted. Now tonight's first case, the oldest we've ever pursued on America's Most Wanted. On Sunday night, May 21st, 1989, right America's Most operation. Wanted aired right the episode on the List Murders. From this angle, notice... In Denver, right Colorado, a family recognized the face of a mass murderer. If you know anything about John List, call... The night America's Most Wanted revealed the forensic bust of John List, Wanda Flannery and her daughter were watching from their home in Denver, Colorado. Much to their horror, they saw a striking resemblance between John List and a former neighbor. And it just all started adding up gradually that he was an accountant and a Lutheran and that he had a, a scar behind his ear and that he was well put together and, and a classy dresser. By the time they got to the sculpture, I was convinced it was him. To look at it, you would have known. And the clincher for me was the glasses and the jowls. We said, oh my God, that's, that's Bob, Bob Clark. Bob is John List. We've got to, we've got to call. Wanda Flannery told the FBI that her former neighbor recently moved to Richmond, Virginia and was using the name Bob Clark. The FBI closed in. In 2002, Connie Chung interviewed List who told her that he didn't kill himself after killing his family because it would have prevented him from getting into heaven. They would all get into heaven and after repenting, so would he and they would live happily ever after in paradise. He honestly believed that if he sent them to heaven and then asked for forgiveness, that he too would also go. Wow, what a nice little loophole that must be. If I were sent to heaven, I certainly want to meet, would not want to meet my murderer there. Again, I believe this to be a cop-out of epic proportion. He didn't want the responsibility of taking care of his family because they weren't doing or becoming what he wanted them to do or be. This was not a loving son husband or father. This was a hypocritical man who portrayed himself as a God-fearing, family-loving individual, but what he was in reality was a weak, selfish, emotionally empty person who took the lives of five people who loved him and depended on him simply so he could walk away and start over again. It never occurred to him to be honest. He took that choice away from them and decided how, how they would react, decided that they would rather be dead than be on welfare. Much like Chris Coleman, divorce wasn't an option because of religion. 
My only question is, if divorce wasn't an option, why was murder even on the table? Is divorce worse than murder in the eyes of his God? What happened to letting the individual decide for him or herself how their life will play out? What happened to free will that the Bible says that God gives each and every person? Why weren't they given that option? Because a selfish, cowardly man decided he knew better and that he was more righteous and not that they deserved death to save them from hell, but that he deserved a better life without the drain of five mouths put on him. John List died in prison in 2008 at age 82. Several months after the murders, Breeze Knoll was set ablaze and burnt nearly to the ground. Though it was deemed arson, they never found out who actually caused the fire. The house was rebuilt on the same property several years later, though. Residents interviewed in 2008 said that the children in the neighborhood wouldn't even walk on the same side of the street as the mansion. It had become the neighborhood haunted house. I can't say I blame them. Now, what I find most ironic about this whole thing is that Breeze Knoll was famous for the original Tiffany stained glass that acted like as the ceiling in the ballroom where he dragged his family. The stained glass was worth $100,000 back then, close to a half a million in today's money. He could have just looked up and towards the heavens for the answer and instead chose to murder innocent people so he wouldn't have to answer for his media or for his uh, mediocrity at being a man. The question though is, would he have sold the glass if he thought about it? Or did he really just want to wash his hands of the burden of family life? I will leave that up to you, listener. If you want to do some research, there's a lot of documentaries on uh, YouTube about it. There's a couple books about it. Uh, dig more into it. There's more in, there's more in it than I actually put out here. This is just basically the rough outline of what happened, but there's a lot more into it. And if you actually went back and researched how overbearing his mother really was, you really would get a clear picture. That's it. Stay tuned. The spin is coming up next. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the spin. And it looks like next week we are going to be talking about cannibal killings. Yummy. Tune in. Can't wait. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining me on episode number six of the Wheel of Crime podcast. Join us next time when we discuss cannibal killings. Until then, have a great week. Don't be a dick. told you <laughs> this was the end of the podcast we did the spin and everything it's time to go i gotta feed the chickens man you hear them they're hungry bye